All right, ladies. Up, 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 up. This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to the Faster Skier Podcast. Okay, this episode is dedicated to the one half of Nordic Combined I know the least about, the jumping. We'll touch a little bit on the skiing side of things, like how the jumping score dictates time back from the first skier off during the cross-country portion of a Nordic Combined event, but really it's mostly about the jump. But before we fly, I'll let Brian Fletcher give an introduction. My name is Brian Fletcher. I'm on the U.S. Nordic Combined team. I've uh, been on the national team since 2006-07 season. I got into Nordic sports at the age of four. From four until now at the age of 30, Fletcher has been jumping, starting in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and eventually moving to Park City, Utah, when he began training with the national team. A few years ago, Fletcher was invited by this guy to take some ski flying runs in Planica, Slovenia. My name is Clint Jones. I am the team director for the U.S. ski jumping side of the of USA Nordic, which is essentially the uh, active body that controls ski jumping and Nordic combined in the United States. On the national jumping team from 2000 until 2007, he was also a 2002 and 2006 ski jumping Olympian and the former head coach of the U.S. ski jumping team. He comes well decorated. With Jones as his guide, Fletcher heads to Planitia for some ski flying. He's one of the few Nordic combined guys that's actually gotten the chance to go ski flying. So um, this was probably Three or four years ago, I went with him and a couple other guys to Planitza. They needed one more person to kind of round out the team event. And uh, given that I was jumping well, I decided that this would be an opportune time for me to try my ski flying legs. Even for a seasoned jumper like Fletcher, it was a bump up in terms of degrees of difficulty. It was the biggest hill at the time, the biggest ski jump in the world. It was a bit of an unknown for Fletcher. The ski flying hills are not open to training or prepared for jumping unless it's a competition. To better understand Fletcher's anxiety on the ski flying hill, it's good to know this. You know, for me, I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. I've done a lot of stupid adrenaline things in my life. And one of those is base jumping off of the bridge in Twin Falls and Typically, they recommend you have 100 skydives before you ever go base jumping. Instead, I spent two months learning how to pack a parachute and then went and took six jumps off the bridge. And to give you perspective, base jumping, I didn't know anything about. I had no preconceived impressions to follow or anything like that. However, with ski jumping, you kind of have those rumors, those commentary from other jumpers. So I was more nervous getting on the bar of a ski flying hill for the first time than I was climbing over the railing of the bridge to jump off for my first time. So let's start all this at the top of one of the most awe-inspiring jumps. In fact, it's called the ski flying hill in Planitia, Slovenia, and it's a big hill. The hill size is about 225 meters. Compare that to the largest jumps Nordic combined skiers usually fly from. They sport a hill size of about 145 meters, and you're looking at flying huge distances. The jumper is about to let go of the bar down a prepared icy track. They let go of the bar, the skis run. Let's stop the action. Here's Fletcher to describe the in-run when he's picking up speed. 
So in Planitza, they just remodeled the hill two years ago. Um, prior to that, it was this really old hill, a lot of history to it. And one of the things that was unique about it is that it had kind of like kinks in the inrun because it was a wooden inrun. So they couldn't really make it smooth all the way down. So it kind of had like a kink where it would kind of change and then they'd use snow to shape it, shape the curve of it. The way it skied always was that you would have like these two foot drops in the inrun as you kind of came down through it. And that added a lot of character and also a lot of fear factor to it as well, because not only did you have to sit in a good inrun, but then you had to survive like all these kind of compressions going down at 60 miles an hour. And so it's pretty nerve wracking your first jump. Back to zipping down the inrun, you'll hear the jumper push off the takeoff and begin the flying. Right when you come off the takeoff, the, the knoll and the, the snow underneath you is super narrow. And the, the knoll, there's like this knuckle that you, that you kind of have to clear. It really doesn't look like you are going to make it over it. Right after you make it past that point, the landing hill opens up and you kind of get this second gust of pressure. You're just kind of flying against the flat ground, flat ground, flat ground, and all of a sudden it, it pulls away and it, it's just, you're just sailing. Like I mentioned, the intent of this episode is to explore the other half of Nordic Combined, the ski jumping piece, so we all understand a little bit more about the sport. We're going to start off with the gear, as in the skis and the suits. So can you talk a little bit about why the suit looks the way it does and then why there are certain rules about how the suit functions? Well, the first thing that I should mention is the suit is uh, probably the most important piece of equipment that we're using. A good suit makes a huge, is a huge advantage to have. Uh, a bad suit is terrible. Well, one thing I would note is, is on my Facebook page, you know, just Brian Fletcher at Facebook, I shared a video that Norway made. And Norway has been one of the best uh, countries in terms of producing suits in the last couple of years. And they know how much of a difference it makes. Well, their best jumper just posted a video because they're looking for new sponsors for to fund their jumpsuits. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you're going to fund the U.S. jumping suits instead of Norwegian. But they show the difference of what a good suit versus a training suit is. And they have their best jumper jump in a comp suit and then go from the same gate and jump in a training suit. And it was a nine meter difference. And in a competition would mean that he would start one minute and 20 seconds back on that, just on those two jumps, the differences. So when you're talking about difference of one minute and 20 seconds, that's a difference of being on the podium versus being in 50th place. With that in the forefront, what we're controlling on the jump or what the jury is controlling on the jump is the size, the fit, the permeability of a jumpsuit. So if you imagine, um, you know, a jumpsuit has to pass 40 liters of air through it to be legal. So they'll have a special machine that will be able to pump exactly the right amount of air through it and then collect that air on the other side of the suit and measure the difference. And if 40 liters doesn't go through, that suit's not legal and you have to get a new one that will pass enough air. So that's the first test that 
most suits will go through. The second one would be your fit. On our bodies, the suit can't be any bigger than three centimeters anywhere. They're extremely custom, and you want to be exactly at three centimeters all over because the bigger suit you have, the more lift and surface area you have, or more lift you can generate because the more surface area you have. We're constantly measuring and making sure that those suits fit properly. The other huge thing that they'll test for is what we call the crotch measurement, which is your inseam measurement on the suit. So we have a, a body measurement of our inseam, and then we have one that's also taken with the suit on. And we want our crotches as low as possible because it's the more, more surface area, more like a wingsuit. However, there's a limit to how low that can be, and we have to be able to pass that at the top of the jump. So there's you know, essentially no low riding allowed in ski jumping. On the jumping side, what is ski selection like for you? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, for cross country and I, and we'll start there because everybody knows cross country, we do the exact same things. We're out there testing grinds, you know, flexes of skis. You know, we have our wax tech staff that's out there testing base layers, powders, toppings, grinds, the whole bit. However, you know, on the jumping side, it's not quite as complicated. We'll typically have anywhere from three to four pairs of skis in a year. You know, each jump ski has a little bit different flex pattern for the tip, the middle of the ski, and the tail. I think that the best analogy that I would use for it or the best way to show that is when you're jumping at low elevation or high elevation. Um, low elevation, the air is thicker. Winds are have more of an effect on a jumper than they do at high elevation, and you can imagine the air is thinner. So a softer ski at higher elevations is going to feel better than a stiff ski at high elevations. But that very same ski that I would jump on in Park City might be too soft if I were to fly to Europe and jump on it. So that's a, a point where athletes might switch skis is, is more based on elevation or temperature even too. And there's the start spot for the jumper on the hill. It's not a fixed point. Jumpers refer to that spot as the start gate. And if you watch jumping videos, that's where the bar sits that the jumper grips onto before they release and zoom down the in-run. Here's Fletcher to explain a bit. In Park City here, where we're training right now, we have, I think, 40 start gates on the, on the hill. If you think about gate one on a hill, that's the lowest starting gate and the least amount of speed. So it's the hardest to go far from the lower gates um, because you have less speed. If, if you go up, you know, gates, then it's easier to jump further and further. And when you start talking about World Cup level competition, and if you watch on Eurosport or if you watch a competition live, you'll see that they'll move the gate around in competition based on the conditions. If the conditions are changing a lot, A, it's for the safety of the jumpers, but B, also to make it entertaining for the spectators. They don't want to start a competition from gate one and have everybody go you know, 50 meters on a hill where they could go 150 meters. So it's it's really crucial that they're right on the edge of where the best jumper is going to jump really far on the hill, but also not too far where he risks getting hurt or, um, you know, or crashing. So it's a, it's a fine balance point um, for each hill. Depending on variables like wind, as in, is it a headwind or a tailwind? And what's the air temperature? Different air temperatures affect air density and pressure. That start gate can change during a Nordic combined competition. Clint Jones adds some detail. 
the best guys need significantly less speed to jump just as far. So when it comes to a competition, everybody has to start from the same gate. So normally they look at the best jumper. They look at how much speed he needs to, to jump, you know, whatever, 10 meters, 15 meters past K. Jones is referring to K point or the critical distance. In other words, it's like par and golf. It's the predetermined spot where a jumper is expected to land, and it's where the steepest part of the hill begins to flatten out. So a K90 hill means it's 90 meters from the takeoff point to where the hill flattens. Beyond the K point, as you can imagine, because the hill flattens, it becomes harder to land too. The difficult part is that the wind has a pretty big impact on on that. And for a lot of years... You know, halfway through, if you have 70 guys competing and halfway through the competition, the wind totally changes. You know, there were cases where you'd have to stop the competition and restart and, and move the, the starting position. Essentially, they, they know that if you, if you start from two gates higher, then that's going to make, on average, um, you know, four meters of a difference for, for distance. So if the wind changes, they, they adjust the gate accordingly and then they can continue on with the competition. And, and if, they, if they move up, then they, they automatically deduct some points from the athlete. And if they move down, they add some points to the athletes. It's all premised on the best jumpers. Their past performances determine the start gate position. And if the winds change, as they inevitably do, the start gate position can change as well. So the athlete is at the bar, awaiting their jump. Again, we're about to hear Fletcher. You slide out onto the bar, and I'm assuming you know an official sort of gives you the go ahead. Mm-hmm. What sort of variables do you look at as your sta- you know your stationary at the bar? Well, the first thing that we're going to look at is the light. So when we're at the top, there's a, a basically like a stoplight, you know, red, yellow, green, with a clock on it. So you can't get on the bar when it's red. When it turns yellow, you're allowed to slide out on the bar and you can't push off the bar until it's green. When it turns green, you have 10 seconds to jump or you're disqualified. So, and they'll pull you back off the bar. So the first thing that I'm going to do is I'll be watching the clock and then I'll notice where my coach is on the coach's stand so that I can see his flag. Because within that 10 seconds, you know, we're going to try and get the best possible win scenario. It's not going to change much, but you know, it might be increasing. So the longer you wait, the better the conditions are getting, or it might be going the other way. The longer you wait, it might be getting worse. So I'll be keeping an eye on the clocks for as soon as it turns green. And once it turns green, I'll look up for my coach. Um, I'll also have like a subconscious eye kind of just on the wind flags, just kind of seeing what they're doing, but not really focusing on them. Um, because it's, I can't control what the wind is doing Uh, The only thing I can control is what makes a good jump and the process that I'm going to go through to, to put down a good jump. So, you know, for me, it's, it's more about just letting the conditions happen, letting my coach, you know, try and get me the best conditions possible. And then as soon as he flags me to give me the green light, I'm going to focus on the technical things that I need to do in order to create a good jump. Cause that's, what's going to get me, you know, a good result. The athletes are watching the coach. We actually have a a 10-second window of when to give them the go-ahead, which isn't really that much time. Whatever the conditions are when he gets a green light, that's what it's going to be. It's pretty normal, actually, for 
a coach, if the wind conditions are bad, you can kind of show that you're upset and the athlete can see that. And they're, they're starting off, you know, leaving the bar at the top and all they're thinking coming down the in run is, oh man, I've got bad conditions. This is going to be terrible. So, so they're already kind of starting off on the wrong foot. It's important for the coaches to try to wait for the wind to, to change as much as possible in a positive direction. And it, we actually have monitors up on the coaches stand, at least at the World Cup level, that show the wind direction and the, the wind strength in real time. So you can watch if there is a, a wind, you know, headwind coming from the bottom of the hill and you can watch it go by each of those checkpoints and you hold that athlete for those extra 10 seconds, that can actually make a pretty big difference. Another thing to keep in mind is there's also the competition jury and their their main job is to keep everybody safe. And these are those are the guys that decide which gate everybody starts from. And then they also set a wind corridor. They won't let an athlete go if the wind is too strong in one direction or another. The competition jury, as soon as the wind um, is within an ex- acceptable limit, then they give the green light and then it's up to the coach to flag the athlete. So now we're moments away from Fletcher releasing the bar and descending down the in-run, the portion of the jump with the preset bulletproof ice tracks for the skis. I should go all the way back to the beginning. When I first started jumping, you had to set a track in the in-run. You'd go up, you'd pack the snow, and then the first jumper would go down and set a track, and everybody would try and follow that exact ski track that he set. You know, after a couple jumps, and if it doesn't snow anymore... That's an awesome track. Then the technology came in where they would snow the in-run, they'd spritz it with water and make it like a block of ice, and then they had these machines go and cut a track down it. Well, that was awesome. However, snow is easily susceptible to failure. So as more and more jumpers jump it, you know, erosion and chips come out of the track and they get, it could get really bumpy. You also had a person setting it. So sometimes they would be doing it late at night when they're tired and it may not be cut straight in the first place. So you used to have character where it would go like you'd come down and all of a sudden there'd be a jaunt to the left or bumps or one track would be higher than the other or lower. It was, it was always a mystery. In today's World Cups, there's none of that. The tracks are perfect. They are typically refrigerated blocks of perfect ice that are smooth and free they have uh, grooves cut in them to allow air channels through it so they're always fast and free and great that's uh, kind of a big turning point in jumping because a couple years ago you actually had to have ski skills to get down an in-run now the in-run positions are set so aggressively that if you know, you were to hit a patch of slow snow, most jumpers would go on their face. But that's where you need to be in order to jump properly on a on a jump today. As you're going down the in-run at this point, so that your skis are in tracks, and I think you described that it's it's a refrigerated ice subsurface or surface that your skis are running on. Yeah, exactly. It's like a hockey rink ice. It's bulletproof and it's it's awesome, but there's no turning back, that's for sure. <laughs> Okay, so so essentially the experience is you're you're not sort of overcome with the audio or audible sensation of like skiing. I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's if I'm skiing around here with a skinny little pair of skimo skis down a sheet of ice. No, you still have that. No, I think it's still there. I mean, it's just different. It's 
it's you know the old sound used to sound like uh like a pair of skis like bouncing off of a wall like all the way down now it's a little bit smoother it's it's more like a high a jet engine sound or something where it's just a kind of a noise so let's kind of think about this section before your takeoff. What are you trying to maximize as you're going down the in-run? So the most important thing is a balanced in-run position where the balance, and when I say balanced, it's, you know, you have a long back, you're, you're low enough where your thighs are almost parallel to the ground or the in-run. Um, you have a lot of shin angle. And then the balance on the foot is, we typically say about, you know, 60, 40 or 70, 30, where it's 70 on the front of the foot, 30 on the back of the foot or 60 on the front of the foot, 30 or 40 on the back of the foot. I'm going to set my position and be there and try and be as just hold that position as best as I can with no shifts in, you know, weight either forward or backwards or side to side, just staying right locked in that position. As you come through the radius and onto what we call the table, which is the actually where you're going to start pushing and, and the jumping process is what we call the table. And that's the grade from the start of the table to the end is constant. There's no curving of or no radius in there at all. It's uh, the radius happens before that. So once you hit that point, that's when you're going to start your movement. Then when you push on the table, it's, it's just like standing up. It's a very simple movement. All you have to do is push straight down with the legs and everything else kind of takes care of itself. So that's the the start of the process we're looking for in about a thousand words more than what we would do on the jump. <laughs> you know, on the jump, we're just like, get into a good position. The athletes are crouched all the way down and they're trying to keep their balance right on the middle of their foot through that radius. And they end up, you know, it's like you're, you're pulling a G or a G and a half. And if that weight shifts at all, if you shift shift a little bit too far to your toes or too far to your heels, then all of a sudden it's, you know, it's like strapping on a bunch of bricks onto your back and then trying to get out of that position. There's just that iconic body position of someone flying through the air on skis. You are way over your skis. What does that allow you to do? Well, first it allows you to keep speed. So I, I think the closest analogy is an airplane wing. To generate lift, you need air traveling faster over the, the top of the wing and slower under the bottom so that it creates that lift. Ski jumping is, is a very similar thing. So you're trying to create lift with the body. So that's why you see that slightly bent position where you're way over the skis and you have that natural top curve there where the air is going to have to travel faster over you. That's one aspect to it. The other aspect is there's so much pressure on the skis in your body. That's the only way that you can stay in balance. If you were to go off the jump and just go let the skis come all the way up and you were to stand up on a big hill, that would almost flip you backwards. You'd probably land on your back. So you have to be that far forward in order to counteract the pressure that's on those skis and on your body. You'll hear me in a second ask Fletcher about the V-shape while flying. I'm referring to the V-shape he arranges his skis in once he's in the air. Once people started incorporating the V-shape into their their jumping, it clearly was an advantage. I mean, from and, and why is that? Well, the, the simple explanation is more surface area. A little bit more elaboration on that is the V allows you to be, it gives you more surface area, which gives you also more pressure, which allows you to be further forward. 
Additionally, because your skis are on that angle and they're slightly both on edge on the outside of you, it provides stability. So you're able to get into a position and stay there easier than you would be when your skis are in front of you. And that's because of there's less turbulence, wind turbulence in where the skis are in the V versus if they were in front of you in your body. If you imagine if they're in front of you, the air comes up, they hit the skis and then they, it curls around the skis and then hits the body. And it creates a lot of turbulence that can disrupt the skis and push them away from your body or bring them closer to you or vice versa. So if you look at old school ski jumping videos on YouTube, you'll see a lot of the early jumpers, it was pretty common for them to crash. Then there's the scoring for the ski jump portion of a Nordic combined event. Clint Jones sums it up nicely. Once they get out on the cross country side, at the end of the, the whole competition, the first guy across the finish line is the winner. You know, if you compared it to a pursuit race, I mean, that's how they do the the start. The guy that jumps the farthest, gets the most points, you know, essentially gets a head start in the cross-country race. Once you leave the takeoff all the way to the fall line, you're being judged on your jump. So, you know, as soon as you come off the jump, the transition into your flight, if you have arms that are moving around or skis that are uneven or anything like that, or your hips are coming through and you're not in the traditional judged form of ski jumping they're going to take deductions away and that'll occur all the way through the flight position until you land through the landing until there's a line at the bottom of every hill called the fall line once you go past the fall line judging is stopped it's easy to understand the first skier across the finish line wins but the head start one skier might have depends on their ski jumping score here's jones again as far as ski jumping scoring goes they look at distance, and then they also look at style. For style points, there are five judges, with the highest and lowest scores thrown out and the remaining three scores added up. A single judge can award a maximum of 20 points. That'd be a perfect score for style from that one judge. I'm going to take an FIS scoring sheet from the jump off a World Cup Nordic Combined race in Oslo from February 2016. Athletes jumped off the large hill. So I want you to have a heads up here. Get ready for a little basic math. The Oslo Large Hill has a K point of 120 meters. Remember, if you're jumping, that's like nailing a par for a hole in golf. If you jump 120 meters to the exact K point, you earn 60 distance points. Every meter past that, you add 1.8 points. And for every meter short of that point, they subtract 1.8 points. You jump 121 meters, one meter past the K point, and your distance score would be 61.8. Jump 10 meters past K, and your distance score would be 78 points. So far, so good, I hope. If you fail to jump K, it's minus 1.8 points per meter. You're penalized for not making par. Okay, keep paying attention because there's more. The score sheet also has a section for gate and wind compensation. Start from the same gate as every other jumper, say gate 22, then no points deducted. Move one gate higher, which means more speed off the inrun, and there's a small point deduction. It works the other way if you start from a lower gate. A few points in that case are added. Then there's wind compensation. If you jump in favorable wind conditions, that'd be a headwind because it provides more lift, then points are taken away. Less favorable conditions, like a tailwind because there's less lift, points are added. Okay, all that is added up. 
basically the points for distance and style. The jumper with the highest score leaves first, at time zero for the cross-country race portion. For every point behind, say during this race in Oslo on February 6, 2016, it's four seconds back per point, or one minute back for every 15 points. So, score 15 points less than the winning jumper, you're looking at a one-minute deficit heading into the ski race. Hopefully now it's easier to understand how time back is calculated in a Nordic combined competition. So those are the human elements of all this. Then there's the actual physical jump. And according to Fletcher, each jump has a unique personality. Each flies differently. Let's start with Lati because uh, Lati is, uh, you know, the site and the venue of world championships this year. Lati is an old hill and older hills have character, which is something that's unique They were designed differently. They uh, have different rhythms to them than a hill like, uh, you know, a modern hill would have. Modern hills tend to be very similar in feeling. They are designed with uh, specific safety concerns in mind, which uh, takes away from the character of it. What would be a typical modern hill that people might be familiar with? Uh, Well, like Sochi was a very modern hill. There was uh, not a lot of in-run rhythm to it. It was very smooth, very no character to it whatsoever. You could go from that hill to another modern hill, and it would be almost identical in feeling. Uh, however, Lati, like because it's old, it, it's got a really sharp radius when you come down the in-run, so there's a lot of G-forces that you're pulling when you're coming through the curve. It's got a really long table. Older hills were designed with, long in-run tables so you pull a lot of g's coming through this this curve and then all of a sudden the pressure releases and then you got to wait and wait and wait before you jump off the takeoff so whereas like on a lot of the modern hills the curve is always continuing until just before the takeoff and then or you know where the table starts it's like very subtle all the way and as soon as that pressure and the g-forces you're pulling kind of releases you got to start jumping so just kind of different characters. You know, the other unique thing about Lati is you have the huge tower. It's always really windy there. Almost three quarters of the the jump is elevated above the ground. You have those giant windscreens there, which, you know, help protect the hill from winds, especially coming from the backside of the hill where it would be tailwind there. It's kind of an intimidating hill for a lot of jumpers. They show up there. It's, you know, usually nuking winds, you're up on this tower, it's freezing cold. It's just kind of a crazy hill. Hayward Field, I don't know if you've ever been there, if you're into track and field, it's this real storied venue. And people know, I mean, I am not a track and field aficionado, but they say when you go to a meet at Hayward Field, that even though everyone in there may not be, you know, a high caliber runner or even a high caliber recreational runner. They appreciate the nuances of track and field performance. So they know what they're seeing. Are there certain venues where you know that you're going to be jumping in front of a crowd that like truly gets what you're doing? And I would say the Hayward field of, of, you know, ski jumping or, you know, the venue of cross country is Oslo, home and colon. Home and Colon is just such an historic jump. I mean, it's, it's the oldest jump or the oldest running competition in history. I think it was 1892 was the first World Cups at Home and Colon. That jump there, and you know, now it's the new modern one that 
you know, most prestigious jump in the world, if you will. It didn't used to, you know, kind of be like that. It used to be a big towering jump uh, with a lot of character, but it was, it was different. And, but what made it so special was the venue itself and the people that were there and they had appreciation for the sport and it's the birthplace of Nordic skiing in Norway. So you're just, everybody does it. Everybody knows what's a good jump, what's a good cross country race. They themselves may never even ski, but they could watch a world cup and be like, Oh, I know, I know this person's going to win, or I know they're skiing strong. Look at that technique, you know, all those things. They, they absolutely know that. And today, when you look at home and Colin, the jump, uh, you know, and also there is, is built to that, uh, spectacle. I mean, it's, it's such a magnificent ski jump and it's built like, you know, no other ski jump has ever been built before. And, and there's good reason for that. Every single competition that you go to there, you know, has this a luster to it, this, this awe, this, uh, you know, mysterious feeling of like, I won in home and Colin once in my life, but before, you know, I ever competed there, there was three things athletes wanted to win. They wanted to win the Olympics, world championships and home and Colin, um, and specifically the King's cup. And that was just, uh, you know, so when you jump there, um, it's a special feeling. And I, I mean, in a place like that where people know what they're seeing, if is there a murmur when they see a Fletcher brother that might be in, say, 20th place or two and a half minutes back going into the ski and yeah. you still have a legitimate shot? Are they like, ooh, the Fletcher brothers are, are stalking? Yeah, I think, you know, today even I still go there and, um, you know, just because I've, I've been there once and been on the podium, people know who you are and they know you're a contender. And they also know that it's World Cup and on any given day, any one of those competitors could win. So, yeah, they they all know that if I'm there and I'm in contention, they know how strong of a skier I am. They know that, you know, they'll look and they'll cheer and, and kind of bring you into a level of skiing that you didn't think you could even do because you're just so excited. They believe in you so much. So it's it's a just a magnificent venue for competition. And that's that's what makes it so unique is just the history, the people, the fans. There you have it. Thanks to Brian Fletcher and Clint Jones for their time. And hopefully the jumping side of Nordic Combined makes a bit more sense. And thanks for listening to the Faster Skeeter podcast. If you have an idea for an episode, please email me at jason at fasterskeeter.com. And in particular, if you listen to the entire episode, a thank you because for certain there were lots of numbers uh, thrown your way.